Good morning, everyone. My name is Alan Mishra, and I am delighted to be here at the Cambridge Trauma and Orthopedic Club annual meeting to talk about tendinopathy in 2022. Now, this work that I'm going to be discussing today is in combination with two of the Stanford Orthopedic Surgery residents, Dr. Michael Hefner and Dr. Chris Fry. We have been writing a book chapter for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. A textbook called Biologic Orthopedics will be published next year. And much of the work you'll see within it is within this talk is from that book chapter that will be published next year. So we're going to talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of tendinopathy, prevention, diagnosis, uh, focus a little bit on biologic treatment options, and then finish with future considerations. So let's just jump right in and talk about the economic impact of tendinopathy. Uh, that's a, uh, there's clearly a significant burden on society. There's loss of productivity, absenteeism, and a rising prevalence of this, I think, after COVID-19 because everybody was inactive and then they became active. So I saw a lot of people who were not doing very much. Then they started hiking or walking or running and developing uh, or, or participating in other sports, and they started developing various forms of tendinopathy. So what is tendinopathy? People call it tendinitis, or they call it a tendon tear. Um, it's a very common problem characterized by variable pain and limb dysfunction that has been rising in prevalence, not just in the last two years, but throughout the 21st century. And it's most commonly seen in rotator cuff tendons, uh, the epicondylar or elbow tendons, gluteal tendons, patellar tendon, and the Achilles tendon. Now, there's a lot of different risk factors, but one that I want to highlight, which many of us know, but we sometimes forget to ask about, are the extrinsic ones, including fluoroquinolone antibiotic use, things like ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin. And there's a massive increased risk of tendinopathy of an odds ratio of 3.95 if you have used this. Statins, however, are not as well known, but there's a hazard ratio of 1.5. And even age over 60 and use of oral corticosteroids has an increased risk. So ask your patients about this, and you may find that there's a correlation. Now, the interesting thing that's emerging but not definitively understood yet is the genomics of tendinopathy. And this is because there's emerging data sets of whole genome sequencing, exome sequencing, even microbiome sequencing that's associated with tendinopathy. And these are polymorphisms, microRNA, and even non-coding RNA may play a role. So we need to keep an eye on this because it's going to help us with one of the problems we have with tendinopathy, and that is really exactly what is causing it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute here. Uh, that is you know, what is the pathophysiology? What is the mechanism by which tendinopathy arises? Now, classically, the angiofibroblastic dysplasia uh, was taught as the failed attempt to repair, which, as you can see in this slide here, uh, results in a disorganized hypervascular tissue. Uh, but I think there's a lot of other things we need to talk about, including a dysregula dysregulated extracellular matrix, which shows increased immune cell concentration enhanced cellular apoptosis, and importantly, mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, so all of these play a role, including some specific cells like mast cells, which are found in tendon tissue. They can be considered sort of sentinel cells, which respond to external insults and secrete modifiers, and then communicate also with nerve cells, which I think is crucial and very interesting uh, via glutamate. 
And if you look at the, the mast cell, it's obviously kind of an interesting cell. And this little cartoon graphic here shows a lot of the different things that can come out of a mast cell when it has been stimulated by a variety of different things. But one of those things can be a tendon injury. So getting back to the histology of uh, tendinopathy, you can see that there's mucoid degeneration, an irregular tenocyte pattern, and you can actually also see occasional calcification. And, and this has led me to kind of develop these four or five different reasons why tendinopathy may occur. And I think they're overlapping, and, and I don't know if any one of them is definitive, but there's macro or micro trauma, vascular, neurogenic, cellular, and metabolic slash endocrine. And the classic thing we learned as orthopedic surgeons is the tendon muscle overload, sort of the stress-strain curve you can see here on the right, which can lead to inflammation and degeneration. Well, we should all, all remember also is that why, do, why does tendinopathy occur at specific sites at the gluteal tendons or the Achilles tendon or even the epicondylar tendons? And it's typically in an anatomic hypoxic zone near a low blood flow area that can lead to a poor healing response and, again, mitochondrial dysfunction. One thing that I've, I've been really trying to figure out a little bit better is the, the neurogenic pathophysiology of tendinopathy and sort of an imbalance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic signaling. So this can be sort of excitatory with increased release of glutamate, um, but there's also a connection in the metabolic and endocrine uh, areas, which we, we again sometimes ignore, but it's associated with diabetes, obesity, hypothyroidism, and, and even low vitamin D levels. So if I'm going to do a rotator cuff repair on somebody, I think this is a modifiable risk factor that we should address. And so I will do a vitamin D level prior to, to an arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, especially in my older patients, to modify that ahead of time because vitamin D deficiency is associated with higher postoperative complications for arthroscopic repair. So what should we also be thinking about in terms of prevention? So stretching definitely helps, eccentric exercise, shoe modifications for lower extremity, and as I said, just correcting vitamin D deficiency. The patients typically prevent with pain and limb dysfunction. Uh, palpation is, is classic. Uh, pain with resisted muscle testing is also noted. But one thing that I don't see very often discussed is the tightness of the muscles that are associated with the tendon, which I've seen um, almost all the time, especially in lateral epicondylar tendinopathy. The forearm muscles are tight. Imaging can include plain x-rays, which show, you know, can show calcific tendinopathy and rule out arthritis. Imaging um, it can be done, but I think ultrasound is one of the fascinating things that I've been doing now for seven or eight years. It's an effective tool to evaluate tendinopathy. It's user-dependent. And you can use it to follow biologic treatments and also compare it to MRI. So this is an example of a partial um, uh, tendon uh, tear on the, on the extensor side. And you can see as we run the video here, you can see an opening of the tendon. All right. Now also, you can follow this and you can see here the prox this is a proximal patellar tendon tear. And then this is uh, after it's been repaired. So the MRI can be used. Um, it's not absolutely necessary to make the diagnosis. And the interesting thing that's coming about is PET scanning. And this is a, a study where they looked at neurogenic inflammation in chronic tennis elbow. And you can see not only does the lateral epicondyle light up, but the entire forearm lights up on the affected side. I think this is evidence that there is increased evidence, uh, increased uh, neurokinin-1 receptor act, uh, availability in chronic tennis elbow, and we should be considering uh, the neurogenic causes. 
So exercise is also a biologic treatment, and uh, this is loading of the tendons, and dry needling can be done as well, which is better, I think, than steroids. And let me explain to you why. I think if you look at the steroids, uh, and this is a patient of mine who uh, very recently came in after a single cortisone injection, and you can see skin discoloration and dermal atrophy on the right and none on the left. Uh, now let's jump in for the last five minutes about biologic treatments and future, uh, tr future considerations. Biologic treatments, of, and specifically PRP, have been rapidly expanding over the last uh, five to seven years. Uh, and, and then uh, the first treatment, the first paper that was published with regard to this uh, was uh, back in 2006, where there was uh, found to be a 93% reduction in two years after treatment of lateral epicondylar tendinopathy with leukocyte-rich PRP. This was followed by a paper by Taco Gosen in the American Journal of Sports Medicine that showed an 85% success rate versus cortisone at 25% at two years. And then finally, the, a, a large prospective randomized trial I did it uh, with 12 different centers in the United States showed that there was increased, this was a PR, leukocyte-rich PRP versus a dry needling control group showed improvement in uh, VAS scores, less elbow tenderness, and overall success treatments that were higher in the PRP versus the control group at 24 weeks. Now, if you look at meta-analysis of all of this with tendinopathy versus PRP, it is pretty clear that PRP is a reasonable alternative. This was just published recently in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. But there are still a lot of doubters. So if you, there's a lot of people who think that PRP doesn't really work um, and it's just a placebo. And this is in January of this year that suggested that there, uh, the benefits are, are not really there. In June of this year, a different meta-analysis came to the opposite conclusion that shows that PRP is effective for lateral epicondylitis. Uh, so I think, I think the, the jury is a little still out as to which is the, the best thing to do. But in my, in my reading of the literature, I do believe that leukocyte-rich PRP is an effective treatment for lateral epicondylar tendinopathy. One thing we're working on at Stanford is PRP augmented tennis elbow surgery, which you can see here. We debride the tendon in a typical inertial type of procedure. We then repair the tendon with either 2-0 or, or ovicral. Uh, suture that's been soaked in platelet-rich plasma and then injected at the end. And we have a case series, not any randomized trials, but case series of about 20 or 30 patients now. Uh, and they appear to be uh, doing uh, better and uh, returning to play faster. Uh, we are now in the process of writing up our results for this. So we'll finish with some of the other areas. I think for the shoulder and elbow and uh, shoulder and wrist and hand, there's more data that needs to be evaluated. Some people believe it's useful for the rotator cuff. The important one is the uh, gluteal tendinopathy. And I think uh, James Fitzpatrick from Australia has shown that leukocyte-rich PRP does beat cortisone in a prospective randomized trial. And so if you're going to inject for trochanteric pain or gluteal tendinopathy, leukocyte-rich PRP is better than cortisone. This is a personal example from my practice. This is before leukocyte-rich PRP. You can see the gluteal tendinopathy by ultrasound shows a hypochoic thickening and disorganized fibers. Six months after shows significant improved tendon morphology and the patient's pain also was radically better. Um, bio, uh, patellar tendinopathy is also um, uh, a little bit debatable, but there seems to be some value there. In my practice, again, I've seen 
uh, variable. Some, some do very well, some don't do as well. Here's an example of somebody who had PRP and then five years later re-injured the knee, showing complete resolution of the partial tendon tear. Uh, and then finally, I think the one we know that it doesn't work for very well is Achilles tendinopathy. There's, there's meta-analysis shows there's no clear value for PRP. Um, I think just to finish in the last two minutes, I want to tease you with some things after 20 years of studying tendinopathy, I'm still a little bit confused by it. I think we can consider different forms of exercise, including blood flow restrictive exercise as one option, um, and low blood, uh, low, uh, low loading blood flow restrictive exercise may evolve into an important option. There's emerging data that suggests it might be useful. Uh, stem cells and other ace and acellular treatments are evolving. An injection of induced pluripotential stem cells from uh, MSCs at least in a, in a rodent model, has, has been shown to be effective in a recent paper. So I think we can look to this area for, for, for some areas of improvement. And the final one is, again, I, I think this is an incompletely understood disorder. Despite two decades of studying it, I still think we, we, we do not for sure know what the mechanism is. So a mechanistic breakthrough would be helpful because you could match a specific mechanism which could lead to a transformative treatment in diagnosis, treatment, and prevention. So thank you so much for the opportunity to speak about something I'm very passionate about, that is tendinopathy. Uh, I, I'll again, like to, uh, to thank Vicus and the Cambridge Trauma and Orthopedic Club for the opportunity to speak today and look forward to any questions that you may have. Thank you very much.